Well, welcome once again to Sailorville Church. Those of you that are here often and those of you that are visiting, thanks for coming. Thanks to those of you that are watching online. And uh, let me say a happy new year to you again. Not because necessarily it's brand new in the year, but I like to wish people happy new year for a really long time because it makes me feel better about keeping my holiday lights turned on. So happy new year. At this point, I just call them Valentine's Day lights. Starting a trend, right? Some of you are there. I know you are. If you've, uh, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know that we've been working slowly through a series called The Life of Christ. And so far, we focused on Jesus' earthly life here on earth. And last week, we saw this incredible story that launched Jesus' public ministry at his baptism. And so here's Jesus After years of relative obscurity, we don't hear a whole lot about him in Scripture. He shows up at the Jordan River where his second cousin John is baptizing people. And you see the whole Trinity pictured all together. God the Son in Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, and then God the Father announcing as he opens up heaven and points to Jesus, says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It's a huge moment in Jesus' life. The gospel writers tell their readers, okay, it's go time. Here's Jesus on the scene. He's not a baby. He's not even a teenager. He's the 30-year-old God-man whose time has come. Jesus' baptism was really his public announcement of his mission in front of the watching world, his coronation, so to speak. And this week's passage in Matthew follows immediately after the last words of that story. In fact, it's likely that the account in Matthew chapter 4 here begins within days of Jesus' baptism, maybe even immediately following his baptism. But in contrast to the public celebration of Jesus' baptism, here's Jesus in the desert, all by himself, in the desolate valleys outside of Jerusalem. In fact, one writer would describe the scene this way. In the wilderness, Jesus would be alone, more alone than anywhere else in all of Palestine. And it's in this lonely place that Jesus will go to war with Satan himself. And I'd ask you to take your Bibles or watch the screens behind me as we read from Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. If you highlight or underline Take care of that phrase right there. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle or the peak of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, the devil says, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, again, it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And and the devil said to Jesus, all of these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came 
and we're ministering to him. Wow. This morning, I believe God has something to say to each one of us about his son, from his word, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not sure what this year has been like for you, or maybe even the past two years or so, but my guess is that it's been tough at times, right? Maybe you felt alone, or discouraged, or tired, and maybe you've even given in to the temptations that have taken you further away from God than you ever thought you would be. I don't know what that looks like for you, but there is one who does know, and that's the one that we're focusing on this morning. In fact, I, I've, been, I've been struck by this passage in Hebrews, and let me just kind of lead off with this, with this passage in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. Listen carefully. This has been encouraging to me, and I think it'll encourage you. For, the writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, which we all have, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 4 says, here's what we can do in response. Let us therefore draw in confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so I'm kind of giving you a peek at the end of the story here this morning. You get that, right? Just in case you nod off and fall asleep, or Jesus comes back and we miss the end of the message, right? You might be in a spot right now that feels so dark, or so isolated, so hopeless, that it seems like no one else could possibly know what you're going through, and there's no way through to the other side. Maybe that's you this morning. The writer of Hebrews says, hang on, there is hope. There is one who is hope. There is someone, the great high priest, whose name is Jesus. He knows, he cares, and he's got plenty of grace and mercy to share with those of us who need it. And so here's kind of your spoiler alert, right? Before we get to the end of the story, we've got a whole lot of meat to unpack, so grab those forks, grab your knives, we're digging in to this fantastic meal here in Matthew chapter 4. We're going to find that we are in the wilderness with Jesus, with Jesus in the wilderness, how to triumph over temptation, how to triumph over temptation. And I think you're going to find this morning, like I was struck this last week, with how absolutely simple and yet profound the answer to that question is. How do we triumph over temptation? So notice in your Bibles again how Matthew sets the scene. Matthew says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus has literally just come from his baptism, his public introduction, his big launch and we might expect Jesus to start gathering followers or intentionally drawing crowds around him, maybe going on tour in all the major cities or some kind of social media campaign or kissing babies and high-fiving people and shaking hands, right? Trying to get his message out there. That might be what we would expect Jesus to do. But instead, after victory comes the valley. After the big win comes the wilderness. After triumph, temptation. It was true in Jesus' life, and my guess is it's true in yours. Some of you have had your hardest struggles, and, and they've come right after some of your greatest celebrations this last year, haven't they? Maybe you got married, and all of a sudden it's not as easy as it was when you were dating. Or maybe you just paid off a whole bunch of debt, and all of a sudden you've got these major car repairs to take care of. That's kind of like a punch in the gut, isn't it? 
Or maybe you made a commitment to read the Bible every day in 2022, and it's January 9th, and you already feel like you failed. Well, with every victory comes a valley. You can count on it. In fact, I see this in my own life. I can draw a line from some of my highest moments spiritually to some of the most discouraging and loneliest times of my life. Some of my greatest triumphs have been followed by some of my greatest temptations to throw in the towel, to give up, to cash it all in, just to crumble. A few weeks ago, Meredith and I were able to attend the funeral of a man named Mel Walker in Pennsylvania. He was a man who was really influential in in my life as a college student, and then especially as a young guy just starting off in ministry. In fact, I I was a volunteer youth director as a volunteer youth director, the church that we attended actually, actually paid Mel to spend time with me. I was that young. They paid an older guy to spend time with me. I didn't realize it at the time, but it was a brilliant idea, right? I had all the ideas and the energy, and Mel had all the maturity and all the wisdom. And so we met for breakfast every single week for several years, and Mel would mentor me and encourage me and love me and challenge me. In spite of all my immaturity, he was there with me. And I remember the day that that church was voting on whether or not to hire me as their full-time youth pastor. And every member in that service got a blank piece of paper about this big, and they were supposed to write down yes or no based on their vote. And they turned their papers into the deacons, of which Mel was one, and the vote was unanimous, 100%. And all the teenagers were high-fiving us. Meredith and I were pumped, and the parents were like, yes, finally, we have someone else to do our job for us. (laughs) And when I met with Mel that next week, I I couldn't wait to find out how excited he was going to be. And instead, though, I remember Mel handing me a stack of papers about this big, the actual ballots, and each one of them had the word yes written on it. And so I grabbed that stack of papers, but Mel wouldn't let them go. And instead, he he looked me right in the eyes and he said, congratulations, you're the youth pastor. Now don't screw it up. (laughs) See, Mel knew a spiritual principle that I believe is taught right here in this passage. Be ready, because sometimes your greatest temptations will come on the heels of your greatest triumphs. And Mel was right. Those first few years of our ministry and our marriage would be some of the most difficult of our lives, and we would be tempted in ways that we never, ever, ever thought imaginable. And in a sense, this is where Jesus is in this passage. The celebration of the public baptism is over, and he's all alone in the desert. Now, Mark's gospel, a correlation to this passage, gives us a little more on how Jesus got there. He actually says that the Spirit immediately drove him, that's Jesus, out into the wilderness in verse 12 of Mark chapter 1. And so here's what we find out. Jesus wasn't in the desert by mistake or by accident or by luck. He was following the leading of the Holy Spirit, walking step by step where the Spirit guided him. And where did the Holy Spirit guide Jesus? Right into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil himself. And maybe you need to hear this today because you're in a time of loneliness, or maybe you're in one of those deep valleys, and I don't know what it is for you, financial struggles or or health concerns. Some of you are watching online because you've got health concerns. You've got kids that aren't following Jesus, or maybe your marriage is hanging on by a thread, or you can't seem to find joy no matter where you look for it. Whatever desert you find yourself in right now, if you're a Christian, write this down. If you're going to triumph over temptation, number one, you have got to walk with the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit. 
Before Jesus even faced Satan in the wilderness, he was walking with the Spirit. And if you're a Christian this morning, it may be that God has led you, or maybe he's even driven you into this wilderness that you're in right now to put you into an environment where you have nothing else but him. My guess is this bothers a few of you because you've been told, give your life to Jesus and everything gets better. Everything gets easier. It's rainbows and unicorns as Christians, right? And all you have to do is pray a magical prayer and somehow everything's going to turn out okay. You'll never struggle. You'll never be poor. You'll have the most obedient and good-looking kids of anybody. You'll win the lottery even though you don't play the lottery. Because now you're a Christian and the Christian life is just one giant playground for everybody that follows Jesus. But how many of you know that when you gave your life to Jesus... Things didn't actually get easier. In fact, in many ways, they got harder, didn't they? Listen, there's a reason for that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are in a war. The Christian life is not a playground. It is a battleground. And like every soldier, you are going to be tested. Not because God doesn't love you, but because his desire isn't for you to be comfortable, but for you to be Christ-like. And for some of you, you've bought into this toxic, worldly philosophy that God's number one goal is to make you happy, when he's actually a whole lot more concerned about your holiness. And so, yes, he does test us so that we can get stronger and so that we can learn to obey and so that we can be more like Jesus. Now hear this. A God who doesn't allow struggles in the lives of his children is a God who doesn't love his children. A God who doesn't allow struggles in your life and in my life is a God who doesn't love us. If you've got kids or you have parents, which is most of you, <laughs> you, don't, you do know this instinctively. You get this, right? Because a father who does everything to make his children happy and comfortable is, in fact, not loving the children at all, but ultimately is setting them up for failure. You know this. But that sounds harsh to some of you. But let me ask you this. How many of you know how to tie your shoes? Raise your hand. Don't be embarrassed. It's okay. We're in an age of Velcro. It's all right. How many of you know how to brush your teeth? Now, don't look around. Close your eyes. Just between you and God, right? Not who did brush your teeth. Who knows how to brush? How many of you know how to make a sandwich for yourself? Okay, all the, all the husbands are like, am I supposed to be doing that? Is that... Yeah, I still struggle with that one, okay? But you get the point, right? At some point, someone let you struggle, probably because they loved you. Now listen, the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And he might drive you there too. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And for some of you, that may be the biggest thing you need to hear this morning. God may allow struggles in my life because he loves me. That could be a major shift in your perspective. So that's God's view on the wilderness. But verse 1 of Matthew chapter 4 tells us that Satan had a perspective on this too, didn't he? Satan, probably in some kind of physical form, shows up because he sees this as an opportunity to tempt the Savior King to fail. See, Satan hates Jesus. And by the way, if you're with Jesus, he hates you too. 
The war that Satan's declared on Jesus, if you're walking with Jesus, he sees you, Satan sees you in every way as an ally with Jesus and an enemy of his. And let me say this as clearly and plainly as possible. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you are an enemy of Satan. And as an enemy of Satan, you will be tempted. You will be tempted. And so he doesn't pull any punches here with Jesus. And over the next couple verses, we see Satan launching three targeted attacks, custom created and aimed right at the heart of Christ. And I think you'll find that they resonate with you as well. In fact, Matthew calls Satan Diabolos, the tempter, the accuser, the one who slanders. And he comes to Jesus in these three waves of temptation. In the first one, he says, look at verse 3, hey, Jesus... If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, it sounds like Satan's questioning whether Jesus is the Son of God, but he's not questioning that. He knows that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember the last few words of the baptism story right before this one that come, to, come directly from God the Father when God opens up the heavens and says, This Jesus, he's my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And so what in the world is the devil getting at here? What he's trying to do to Jesus, what he's been trying to do to people all throughout history. Maybe he's done this to you. He's planting little seeds of doubt, isn't he? It's almost as if he leans forward and whispers, Jesus, hey Jesus, are you really the son of God? Does God really love you? I mean, how, Jesus, how could a good God, a loving father, allow you to be out here in the wilderness all alone and hungry for so long? How could a good God really allow that, Jesus? It's the same way he tempted Eve in the garden, right? Hey, Eve, did God really say that? Come on, Eve, if God actually loved you, wouldn't he let you do anything you want? Has Satan lied to you in the same way? A loving God would never keep something from you that you want, would he? Well, would he? So Satan makes this suggestion to Jesus. Jesus, use your divine powers, your godness, to meet your own needs. Obviously, Jesus, God doesn't love you enough to even provide simple things like food, so just do it yourself. Now listen, Jesus had gone 40 days without food at this point, and he was hungry. I think I went one time 40 minutes without a snack, and it was tough. My son Judah, he, he, he like hates eating. He does not understand why we have to eat. He'd rather play. This morning he goes, Dad, I'm going to fast this morning. <laughs> He's not that spiritual. He's just trying to get out of eating, right? <laughs> now listen, Jesus could have snapped his fingers or blinked his eyes or, or just had like a glimpse of a split-second thought and those rocks would have become rolls. But instead he turns to the devil and he looks him in the eye and says these words, It is written. Okay, first of all, Jesus, I, I get that you don't have a whole lot of energy right now, so maybe like a full-on MMA wrestling match isn't really what you're trying to get at here, but could you just have slapped Satan around a little bit? I mean, could you give him a quick kick in the shins or maybe taking your fingers and like poked him in the eyes or something? This is the devil that you're fighting against, and your response is, words? Words? But these aren't just any words, are they? 
See, Jesus isn't quoting his favorite motivational speaker. He's not repeating a line from the latest bestseller or even rehearsing the lyrics to the most popular worship song of the day. These words are the words of God. These words are inspired. They are truth. They are words that will not be twisted, manipulated, or misused. They are straight out of the pages of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so, friends, if you want to know how to triumph over temptation, be more like Jesus. Follow his example. Number one, walk with the Spirit. And number two, cling to the Word of God. amazing to me that the first response Jesus has to this all-out offensive from the devil is to quote words from a book that was written hundreds of years earlier. Think about that. But watch this. Jesus knew the Bible. He trusted the Bible. He loved the Bible. And when it came to having victory over temptation in his life, he perfectly illustrated the point of the psalmist who in Psalm 119 says this, How can a young man keep his way pure, or a young woman, or a man or woman of any age? How? By guarding it according to your word. That's the Bible. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. That's the Bible. I've stored up your word. That's the Bible in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, Jesus says, look, Satan, I can turn these stones into bread, no problem. But here's the issue with that. God brought me out here for a reason. And if I put my own physical needs before my spiritual needs, that's going to be sin. And so I'm not going to allow you or anybody else to tell me what I need to do. And unless I get a word directly from my father to order up some Chick-fil-A right now, I'm going to stay hungry. In fact, Satan, I came to obey God not to seek my own comfort, my pleasure. I want to do his will, not mine. I'm here for his glory, not my own. I'm on a mission to make his name great. And Jesus says, Satan, if that means I got to deny my own desires for a while, then so be it. Oh, that's amazing stuff. He's affirming his absolute confidence in the Father's promise, in the Father's pledge in the father's love for him and he reminds satan he looks at him right in the eyes and he reminds us of the same thing here this morning walk with the spirit cling to the word of god and god will take care of everything else and friends when you prioritize what god wants in matthew chapter 6 a couple pages down the road here jesus would say when you seek first the kingdom God will provide you with everything he wants for you to have a life that glorifies him. Don't doubt his love for you. Don't put your physical wants above your spiritual needs. Walk by the Spirit and cling to the word of God in 2022. Back to Matthew chapter 4, the second temptation. Next we See the devil transporting Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, probably 500 feet above the Kidron Valley below, where he says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, then throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Throw yourself down off the temple, Satan says. The second temptation strikes right at the heart of, of the previous victory. Jesus defeated that temptation by proving that he was much more concerned about his spiritual health than he was about his physical well-being. 
that he could accept hunger and weakness and isolation in the wilderness if it meant that he was obeying God, right? And so now Satan wants him to do something spectacular to demonstrate that God really would honor his son's obedience. It's as if Satan is saying to Jesus, okay, fine, you say you trust God for your physical needs like hunger and things like that? So now let's see if God is really worthy of your trust. Let's, up it up, let's take it up a notch. Let's see if God's really going to come through in front of all these people worshiping in and around the temple. And what's really interesting here is that Satan himself now quotes scripture, doesn't he? He quotes from a psalm that says that God will send his angels to protect and provide for his people. And so Satan's saying, you want to quote scripture, Jesus? Here's one for you. If you really believe the word of God, then jump off this building and see if it comes true. Do you really trust God? Then do it. Listen, Satan knows the Bible better than you do. He knows the Bible far better than I do. It's at his fingertips. It's on the tip of his tongue. His problem isn't knowing the Bible. It's not knowledge. It's interpretation. One of the first rules of Bible interpretation, and you'll find this in our Bible study journals that we're giving out, is that Scripture doesn't contradict Scripture. Satan should have grabbed himself a journal because he totally ignores this rule. He says, hey, Jesus, you keep quoting scripture to me like the Bible says it. I believe it. That should settle it, right? If it's true that the angels are commanded to take care of you, then go ahead and jump, Jesus. You don't have anything to worry about. If God can really be trusted, then he'll protect you, even if you do something completely crazy. Now catch how Jesus responds to Satan. He says, again, like you're not getting it, pal. Again, it's written. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now this temptation, this whole scene might seem a little bit odd to us because most of us are normal people who would never jump off the top of a skyscraper and expect that God would save us before we hit the ground, right? Because we logically understand that that's not what faith means. But how many of you have blamed God for not rescuing you from a stupid decision that you made at one point or another? You didn't study at all for the exam, and it's in front of you at the desk, and you pray, God, please help me remember all the things I did not study. And you fail the exam, and you blame God. Or maybe you spent way too much money on things you didn't need over Christmas, and now the credit card bills are starting to roll in, and you're like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Where was that like a month ago when you were filling up all your Amazon carts with things that you want? Or maybe you don't exercise or watch what you eat, and then you say, Jesus will take care of me. Yeah, but you're, yeah, nobody laughs at that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, your doctor said, yeah, I, I know what my doctor said, but I can do all things through Christ. You're going to die. Don't blame it on God. Get a treadmill. Here's one more. Maybe you're dating someone that doesn't love Jesus and you say, well, you know, I see God working in all of this. He brought this unsaved girl into my life. He allowed us to cross paths in that bar late one night. He allowed her to return my phone call. She actually finds me interesting, which has to be a miracle. I mean, look at all these miraculous events working in succession and all together. It must be the Holy Spirit. Stop. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's your hormones. And then you get married and you find out she still doesn't love Jesus and you can't understand why God isn't showering blessings on your marriage and you blame God for a failed marriage. And Jesus says, Satan, I'm just going to go right back to the Bible here. 
I know some people don't like the Old Testament anymore, but check this out. Deuteronomy 6.16, Jesus says, don't put God to the test. And listen, friends, you're putting God to the test when you put yourself into circumstances that force him to work miracles for you. There's a big difference between faith and foolishness. And here's what it comes down to. If you're walking in the Spirit, walking with the Spirit, being led by the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus was, and you're clinging to God's Word, you'll understand the difference between stepping out in faith and stepping out in foolishness. Let's be men and women of faith and stop being fools who put God to the test and then blame him for our own stupidity. So Jesus says, no thanks, Satan. I do have faith in my Father, but I don't need to do anything heroic to prove it. I'm not going to go trying to manipulate God by doing something foolish, especially not at your prompting, Satan. And so Jesus shows us once again how to triumph over temptation by walking with the Spirit and clinging to the Word of God. And then finally, the third temptation, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, And the devil says to Jesus, I'll give you all of these if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Satan says, fall down and worship me. This last temptation, it's it's amazing in its boldness. It's almost as if Satan realizes he's not winning. And so with nothing else to lose, he calls Jesus to worship him. And the force of the original language here is Satan saying, just bow down and worship me like one time, just for a moment, Jesus. You can do it just for a moment. But Jesus knew that it was, that it was God's plan that he would suffer and die before he rejoined his father in heaven. And that if he bowed down and worshiped Satan, even just this one time, even for a split second, that Jesus would be given all the glory that God had promised him, but without enduring all the suffering God required of him. And Satan was offering Jesus the gain without the pain, right? The prize without the process. He was offering Jesus a shortcut around suffering, and Jesus was having none of it. And his response to Satan, once again, directly from the word of God, he says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and then he adds, and only him shall you serve. Well, wait a minute, Satan didn't say anything about serving, did he? Satan actually said, all you have to do is just bow down and worship me. I'll give you everything you see here. But Jesus knew that whatever we worship, we will serve. In fact, Warren Wearsby said it this way, worship and service always go together. One of my friends, after reading this passage in the reading plan this last week right here in Matthew chapter 11, wrote this on a text thread that I'm in with a bunch of men. He says this, this passage pressed hard on my heart this morning. I know I am far too often worshiping myself, my wife, my work, and my worldly treasures, and other things too. Please pray that I will be more sensitive to the Holy Spirit to battle against my sin. Yes, that's good stuff right there. Satan had one aim in the wilderness, to do whatever he could to keep Jesus from suffering. Oh, he was eager to let Jesus use his divine power if he would just use it to relieve his own suffering. He was willing to let all the worshipers in Jerusalem see and acknowledge Jesus' divine sonship if only the angels of God would keep him from suffering. Satan was okay to let Jesus have all the glory and all the authority of a world ruler if he just wouldn't gain it through suffering. So why go through all this trouble to to prevent Jesus from suffering? Why was it so important to God that his son Jesus suffer? 
Because only through his suffering could God be glorified. Remember when Jesus said to the disciples that he had to go up to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed, and his buddy Peter says, God forbid it. This should not happen, Peter says. And how does Jesus respond to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. See, Jesus had to suffer for God to get the glory for the plan of salvation. And Jesus had to suffer so that you and I could be unified with him. Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced, that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus had to suffer so that you and I could have peace and healing from our own sins. He had to suffer. And so, friend, how are you walking through the wilderness right now? Are you being led by the Spirit? Are you asking Him to guide you? That's prayer. Seriously, are you asking God to guide your steps, your actions, your thoughts, your motivations, your purchases, your schedule, your words? Are you fighting God's leading or are you following God's leading? And are you clinging to God's Word? Do you know it? Do you trust it? Do you love it? I heard about a new Christian this week who said, developing the daily discipline of being in the Word every day has been the single best habit I've ever formed. That's so good. And I'll just add this one here because I think it's something really practical. Are you turning down the noise around you long enough to actually talk to God and hear back from Him in prayer and Bible reading? John Nemers a couple weeks ago said, you and I were not created for chaos. We were made for meditation. The thing about meditation is you got to turn the noise down. you got to get rid of that chaos and clutter. Turn off the phone, shut the TV down, get alone with God. You'll find him waiting to meet you there. Maybe it's that search for quiet or for peace or for hope that brought you here this morning. Maybe you've tried everything, but you haven't yet tried Jesus. Friend, it is not too late. Admit your sins. Believe that Jesus suffered and died for you and that he was raised to life three days later and give your life to him in worship today. The story ends in verse 11 where Matthew tells us, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to Jesus. A few years later, James, who grew up with Jesus as his half-brother, would write these words in James chapter 4, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You want to know how to resist the devil? Draw near to God by walking with the Spirit and clinging to the Word of God, and God will draw near to you in 2022. There is hope in the wilderness. You can triumph over temptation. Lord, thank you. For the word of God. Thanks for the Bible. We have it so readily available to us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Who Jesus left for us and your followers. Thank you for the ability to be led by the Spirit. And Lord, even yes, sometimes driven by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray right now. I don't have any idea what's going on with most of the people here in front of me or online but you do. And you may have allowed them to be in the wilderness right now, maybe even being tempted by Satan. You see it as a test. Satan sees it as a temptation. Lord, give them strength through your Holy Spirit. Allow them to not 
Google the answer. But to go to God's word for the answer. As the psalmist said, Lord, sometimes we feel like our lives are in the dust. Give us life through your word, Lord. Thanks for your promises. In your name, amen.